0: This is NegotiateX Podcast, show number 81, part B. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us on NegotiateX Podcast. We are continuing our conversation with Martin Van Rossum, head of strategy at Influence. If you haven't already checked out part A of this show, be sure to do that first. Let's jump into the conversation with Martin.
1: In your book, uh, Top Negotiators, you selected a number of individuals who you deemed kind of worthy of emulation. I'm curious, what can you share about these people? Maybe you should share a story or two I guess specifically, what are the negotiation skills that they as top
2: negotiators regularly display in practice? Oh, uh, now I have to choose between my, uh, <laughs> uh um, no, I think, uh, w- well, by far one of the, uh, yeah, uh, most interesting people to listen to was general, uh, Gommert. It was a four-star general, uh, Dutch Marine. He's at the UN right now. I asked a lot of people in the ministry of defense. So who do, who do we ask? And they all pointed at him. I was like, okay, then that's a telltale. That's to him. And during the interview, we were only listening and absorbing his really nice stories. Some also really dreadful stories, by the way. But And we constantly had him bring it back to, okay, General, thanks for this. It's an amazing story. But what negotiation lesson do we get out of this? <laughs> and he said, I was never trained to become a negotiator. I may be naturally, maybe good at it if other people tell you to go to me. But I thought that the, the small things he sometimes did were really, in that sense, brilliant. For instance, he was sharing a story about two tribes that were competing in, in Africa in, uh, in Congo where he was stationed at that time. And it was about the, the color of, uh, they had to paint something in a, in, a, in a certain color. I think it was the doors and the color had a political meaning. So uh, they wanted sort of neutral colors, but they were now in a new fight over which color to pick. And he basically came with a procedural solution. And I think those kind of things, you know, this is uh, Harvard method number four, right? Externalizing the difficult uh, solutions. He basically, but without any training, he said, you know what? Why don't you guys make a list? And you guys make a list of the colors that are acceptable to you. And the first one, if we go from top to bottom on the list, the first one we run into that is mutual, that's the color uh, we're going to agree to. So yeah, that's a bit of a gamble, of course, for Mm -hmm. the both parties. So they wrote down these colors and they made a choice based on this. So I thought it was at least a very nice one of somebody that says, I was never trained to do proper negotiation, but if the pressure is high enough and the conflict lasts long enough, you get to these kinds of things. Anyhow, if you're creative enough. So the creativity part to me uh, was also very interesting to see with a few of the people that we interviewed, the prime minister was at that point also my boss. So I knew him quite well. He says the most important part is courage and really, I think it's Stephen Covey who said, seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Really make sure that you understand the other party first, and then you can start to, you know, put your, download your story on them. Mm. Uh, but the only way to get to a deal is to really, if it serves uh, both parties really well, and he's known for his deal-making skills. So sometimes he he just uh, holds phones together, right? So he flips phones and says, talk to each other, right? He, he, he literally does <laughs> that, uh, making <laughs> sure he brings people together under his, of course, you know, with a, with a bit of power of the prime minister. Basically saying, you know, at this point, we need a deal, so talk to each other. And uh, making that extra, maybe use this phone call, is super helpful Mm. uh, in building those relations. So those are the things that I really uh, remember from his interview. And I think he called 20 seconds of courage. I don't know where the 20 seconds came from, but uh, sometimes you just have to be very courageous Mm. and do something that at that point might sound a little bit weird, Mm. but do it or ask for it and make sure that, yeah, what you want is basically on the table Mm. at the right time. And one lesson that I found really interesting, and you said I was part of the deputy chair of the Dutch jury on, uh, for the national negotiation prize. And this year, Seike Siebesma one who's the former CEO of DSM, which is a big, uh, well, first it was a state mines and then it became a chemical company. And now it's a food company. Mostly they're also very active in the U S also on bio, diesel and uh, nutrition. And, um, he was negotiating with an American firm at a certain point and at a, you know, The CEO comes in, that's either the point where you're going to break the deal or you're going to sign the deal, right? But there was still a lot of room left and there was a lot of unclarities and he saw he was flown in to get to the point where the deal would be signed, but he also saw probably never going to make it. We're too far apart still and he shared his story in public, so I think I can reshare it. He was sitting at the table, at his side of the table and then at the other side was the American company. And they were going back and forth, a very unproductive conversation and uh, just basically repeating what they were saying instead of entering into a dialogue. And then at a certain point, and here's the, where the courage comes in, Fijke Siebersmart took up his chair and walked to the other side and put his chair next to the CEO of the American company and sat next to him, which is yeah, a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of an <laughs> unexpected move probably for the others. And so he's, he said, yeah, Mr. I don't know what his name was, I'm quite useless on that side of the table. So I thought, let me sit here and listen in. I hear you say this. And then he basically repeated from his perspective all the points that that CEO just made. So he was really, yeah, going into the skin of that CEO. And he said what that did is that that CEO saw that I understood him, Mm. but there was still some stuff that we also, he should also understand us. So he sat there for about 20 minutes. And of course, you know, it, it gives creates a completely different dynamic, of course. So a lot of jokes and a lot of the, the relation uh, went up quite quickly, and then they moved back and came to the deal quite quickly as well. Because he basically he said oh, Dick, to me that he said I'm I'm guessing still, but I think the the key was that I sat there, I sat next to him physically next to him, mm-hmm. saying I understand what you're saying, but we still have to move forward together. So how can we move forward together? And yeah, that kind of, I, I love those kind of stories and negotiations, because this is actually where the courage comes in, right? People can say, you know, you need courage, but yeah. okay. How do, what does that look like? It looks like this, I think.
1: Yeah. That's a wonderful illustration. Now half of the folks in your book are women. And earlier you said women make the best negotiators. Can you expand on that? Why do you believe that's so? And what do we as three white men, uh, all all middle-aged, what do we need to be learning from our,
2: our women counterparts and partners. What can we as men all, uh, learn from uh, from the women? Now, I think. Uh, well, uh, first of all, it, it's, a, it's a Harvard study. It's not me. Uh, I, I'm just reproducing uh, basically what they found. But we use it a lot here in the Netherlands. And the full result is women are better negotiators, comma, but not for themselves. And I think if you translate it into sort of energy that people have, I think people with a lot of, let's say, feminine energy are better negotiators than typical masculine or a male energy, I don't know how to translate that well, but so basically if you have a lot of empathy, if you have good listening skills, if you have uh, a lot of creativity in you, all those kind of things are really helpful uh, if you negotiate the way we all negotiate, mm. uh, which is not an arm wrestling match. You make it into an arm wrestling match, uh, my my gain is your loss. Yeah, of course, then probably men are classically better at it because ultimately we start to fight and fighting is more of their uh, masculine trait, of course. But what I see is the creativity part to me and the really understanding part is really on your, on your question, what can we learn? I think that is a part where what we can learn, but also the, sometimes the courage part it displays a little bit different, maybe every now and again, but the courageous part uh, is also a key thing. I think any negotiator should, should adapt. And of course, making yourself smaller and saying, I don't deserve this, or the other party will probably do this, this, and this. That, I think, is a downside of feminine traits in in negotiation. And that's, I think, what explains the comma in the line, better negotiators, comma, not just for themselves. Because if you go to the table and they say, you know, what I'm going to ask, I I don't deserve this. Or what I'm going to ask, maybe other people are better. Sort of the insecurity isn't helpful to anyone, right? So I think that part is the part where we really put a lot of, I don't think it's nature, to be honest. I think it's nurture in a lot of systems. uh, At least Mm. in Dutch society, everybody... uh, talks about how progressive we are. I think we're really traditional here. Our girls, we bring them up differently than our boys. And, uh, you know, if you're a boy and you're a little bit, uh, you have a big mouse, It's it seems, oh, wow, look at him. Uh, he's a good kid. If girls do that, we appreciate that differently. Yeah. And I think it starts there and then goes all the way up until, you know, if I, uh, uh, well, not me, but if I, as a father, I don't know, I see an ambulance, I tell my son, hey, son, look, an ambulance. And if I, I don't grab my daughter and say, hey, girl, look at that, there's an ambulance, right? So um, it's also the choices you make as fathers and as mothers, but also the choices you make uh, in the school system, all the way up until the first uh, jobs and the first contracts they're going to negotiate. And this is where, to me, the interesting difference comes in, because if they start to negotiate contracts on behalf of someone else, wow, (laughs) I mean, that's a different story, right? Right. So we always tell the people, basically, we shouldn't fix the women in this part But it really helps if you externalize yourself. So you have yourself and then negotiating yourself. So if you negotiate, there's a few tips we can give you, but they're basically good for everybody. But we really want to talk to the organizations and the men involved because everybody has to negotiate in a culture. And if the culture that you're negotiating in is not fit for women or not made for women, then as an organization, you should maybe think about flipping that too. And what role can men play in that? And then I always end up with a sort of a joke at the end. Because it's interesting to see that most HR departments here in the Netherlands, the big majority is women who work, who negotiate with the new men and women that want to join the firm. Okay. So the rest of the joke I won't make, but it's really key that you see it's a systemic thing, right? It's the organization that chooses to reward certain negotiation behavior and what they don't reward. And to me, that's the illustration of women of the HR department negotiating with new women. is a weird one, right? So here they're really good in negotiating because they can externalize themselves. It's not for them, but here it's difficult. So so there to me is, it lies a bit of the, uh, maybe the key to uh, unlocking more value there.
1: Yeah. It's a deep answer there in terms of societal and
2: then organizational and then personal dynamics occurring. Yep. Yeah. And I I like, this is also what we try to help people with. And uh, even though I agree with, you you shouldn't fix the women, you should fix the system. What we try to do is we look at the three, so the men, the organization, and the women. And with those three, we can try to, I don't know, close gender pay gaps or visibility gaps or whatever. But I do tell people, well, I'm, I don't agree with, uh, don't fix the system as a dynamics for not doing anything. Right. But right? I have never seen the system change by me sitting on a couch waiting <laughs> like this for the system to change. So you should at least do something. This is my, and a lot of the people that work here, our, let's say, thing that we can do to change the system and maybe it's not the right one. Let's talk about it. Let's disagree and let's find a better way, but not doing anything and saying, well, I shouldn't fix the, the women fix the system and then sit on your couch and do nothing to me is a, it has a bit of a comfortable uh, way of not doing it.
0: Yeah. So having worked both in the public sector and private sector, I'm sure you've seen your fair share of dirty tricks and hard bargains. How do you handle counterparts that are disrupting the negotiation through less than savory tactics?
2: Yeah. I think it depends on the tricks. If they're small tricks, let's say uh, we tell people when we train people, we tell people we're not training you on dirty tricks, but we show them to you because we want you to recognize them and here's what you can do against them. So if it's that, let's say the tricks at the table, they're so easy to counter. We always tell people it's a skilled negotiator. Don't even try with skilled negotiators. Cause you know, it'll only lead to is irritation. Is that a good English word? An yep. Annoyance in the relation. So don't even try it. It's a waste of time. But, and then there's the um, there's two other categories of tricks, I think. One is where you use tricks to manipulate and in a fair way. I mean, I can manipulate a lot with, uh, you know, when we talk about stuff, when do I come back to you, taking a lot of time, for example, those kind of tricks. Sometimes they're justified, but the first time I always do is a, is a deadline check, right? You give me a deadline and I always say, oh, that's hard, Nolan, because I still have to talk to Aram and I only see him next week on Thursday. So I can't work with your deadline of Monday. And if you then say, oh, well, okay, fine. Talk to Aram first. And well, then I know your deadline was fake, right? So is these little tricks at the table. I always say, see if they are justified because it can be a deadline yeah, that you have to work with. But if they're not, then at least, you know, there's some smart tricks with which you can challenge those kind of uh, uh, dynamics or deadlines. So that's one. And then the other is, of course, the big tricks in... But that's sometimes because we are a part of uh, big public negotiations or negotiations where journalists really want to know, you know, what's going on there. Yeah. If you then use media, for example, or all kinds of ways to put pressure or you get, I don't know, parliamentarians or ministers or high ranking civil servants, all of a sudden picking up the phone, putting a lot of pressure on the other side. Those are, of course, tricks that are really harmful for the relation, but sometimes can flip the table immediately. And all of a sudden you're in a losing streak. Well, I tell people there's one thing you have as a negotiator, which is your image, your reliability. Uh, You don't want to play around with that too often because people will hold it against you for a long time. And if you're, especially like us as professional negotiators, if you negotiate once at this table and the next time you run into the same, and this is a small country. If you run into the same people again, or people do their research on you and like, oh, that's the guy that pulled the trick in the other negotiation. Mm that's a trust issue so yeah and we also again here the answer to me is also relation really making sure that through the relation and even even i, I did a few big negotiations uh, one was with the mexican government and it was stone cold in the beginning and there were virtual negotiations mm. so the first thing i did was really work on the relation and sort of you know getting the temperature below above uh, what is it freezing 32 <laughs> 32 fahrenheit <laughs> we call it zero here but getting the temperature. Uh, back to normal and with that building a relation and finding that unity that cialdini always talks about so how can we solve this problem together mm. took us months and then the deal phase went quite quickly uh, ultimately because we had a good relation but that also make sure you don't jump in find something common to work on show interest in the other person and it ultimately resulted two years later one of the parts of the deal that we had to travel up and down to uh, look at uh, implementation and during the first trip, I shook hands with this person that uh, you know didn't didn't come across as very friendly in the beginning. So we had an all joint program, and was also to make sure that we would keep this warm relation because we needed each other for the implementation. Mm. Uh, but the second evening, I ate something bad. I uh, had a bad uh, night, let's say, and the next <laughs> morning. Uh, this person, uh, he said, you know what? Uh, let me stop by pharmacy. He got me medication. He got me the the special water you guys have there. If you uh, <laughs> and uh, we made pictures of us standing together on a village square, mm. it was hilarious. So that <laughs> story, I always try to say, if I just started to negotiate with that person without first deicing, let's say the relation, I would probably still negotiating with them. Yeah, to me, that's still that picture of us standing together. It's still, while well, I keep it to myself, but it's still a very nice, mm-hmm. uh, nice picture. Yeah,
1: it's a nice, nice illustration. In your opinion, what are some of the emerging trends and negotiations that professionals should be aware of, especially in the context of both a rapidly changing global landscape?
2: as well as changes in technology. Yeah, to me, so we are working a bit with AI currently here at the office, also trying to understand how AI can be helpful. So we fed them, I don't know by which name you know the game, but it's basically the oil pricing game, the X and Y game, the win all you mm. can game, that model we fed into AI and started negotiating with let's say the computer as grandfather here says. Yeah. And we saw that it basically takes the, the wrong exits as well, like humans do based on emotion, based on loss aversion it takes wrong exits there as well. So Mm. we now illustrate that every now and again, basically use AI to prepare your uh, strategy, to to know all about a person, uh, to prepare, I don't know, speaking notes for the people that uh, you need, prepare for your stakeholder engagement, maybe use AI, but don't trust AI because AI is still based on a lot of human input. And uh, I think we all know that on human input is where negotiations sometimes uh, uh, really go wrong, right? Uh, So that's one. I think it's not a new trend, but the way social media can be used to, well, let's say back in the day, you needed a proper journalist or a proper TV show or whatever to create pressure on the table. Right. We always say there's pressure at the table and there's pressure on the table, right? So to create pressure on the table, you needed external people and you needed to convince them. And there was a risk, of course, there as well. Now that goes so quickly and people might have an opinion on it. But you can also use it to your advantage, right? So there's ups and downs, I think, to the use of uh, social media, but it's not. So sometimes negotiations need a bit of intransparency. Is that a word? Where like a closed room where you can let the process have its own um, dynamics. And uh, yeah, it's disturbed by the external world. And now it sounds like I'm a proponent of not working transparently. I'm not. I think there's a lot of, uh, especially in governments, it's good to have some transparency vis-a-vis the society you're working for. But yeah, I always joke, if we need to organize a party and uh, Aram and I want to work together, we don't want you in, Nolan, and we're going to write that all in a newspaper. In two seconds, we have a gigantic fight in this group. So sometimes need that protection of, uh, you know, we can say a lot to each other and it won't go out of this room. And that's not like in Transparent, like, rule big system, uh, we try to screw over the society. That's not what it is. It's more like we as people, we need some some protection uh, to open up to each other. And if we would have done the negotiations I was just referring to in Mexico, we would have done them with two journalists sitting next to us. Yeah. Then it's hard to create something together with which you can make the band, sell the win and also sell the loss or absorb the loss together.
1: Yeah. It reminds me of that concept of back channel negotiations of being able to have the freedom to say things that need to get said so that we can work towards a solution. And of course it makes me think about so many of the diplomatic challenges we're seeing today globally, Ukraine, Russia, Israel, Palestine, and some conversations are going to need to happen with a little less transparency. And that is really hard given the challenges you're talking about.
2: No, I agree. And um, I think it wasn't it the Cuba crisis that was solved by two second secretaries of the embassies in Turkey, right? If I remember correctly. But I think you should also uh, create these spaces here in the Netherlands. We were part of the, we guided the negotiations on the agricultural accords, which was Basically, uh, yeah, we have a, we're a very densely populated country. We need to make some very hard choices in how we want to do our agriculture because we are, after the United States, we are the second largest agricultural exporter in the world. So it's a lot of agriculture. But we're a very small country, right? So we needed to find a way to move forward. And there, we, let's say, the starting point of those conversations was, Very angry farmers, new farmer groups, let's say, they were not the traditional farmer represented, but also new ones that were very, Mm. let's say, well, militant maybe or aggressive or blocking highways and getting their way with their big tractors, right? And getting the sympathy vote of the people, right? These were the people that feed us. So, Mm. uh, and then, you know, getting the industry, the banks, everybody should be around the table under the guidance of the Ministry of Agriculture. And there we also needed to find, because the press was constantly chasing uh, the group, so, um, we just asked a few farmers, "Hey, can we come to your farm in, I don't know, four hours, and please keep this quiet?" So we had all these secret locations. there were there were just farm big farms that we knew had some uh, some place to host a group. And there we could have these these negotiations in a in a relatively uh, safe environment for the people. Then there was always one joker who uh, then called like, we're at this farm right now. And blah, then the media would come. <laughs> and then that is the point where we also saw like, maybe it's going too well at the table. And then people at the tables, they don't always have an interest in getting a deal. Mm. So they would call and then boof, uh, that round would, was blown up.
0: So looking back on your career so far, what's one negotiation failure that you learned the most from? And also kind of on the other f- side of that coin, what is one negotiation success that you're most proud of?
2: Pooh, um, Yeah, well, I think that there's a lot of mistakes uh, that I made and I'm a bit of a, I, I like to make deals. I, I love deal making. So sometimes I go in too quickly and I think really first understanding the other party really well, you should really take time for that. And sometimes I skip that phase or I, I just do it in not enough time. Let's say taking for that phase. Yeah. And especially here in the Hague that sometimes is killing and the Hague, I mean, the, in the government, uh, the top of the government, you should sometimes take time, but yeah, people feel pressured. Uh, Not everybody has their interests aligned. So some people want to go quick and others want to stall. So uh, taking the right amount of time there is, is key. I find it hard to name examples because of the work I did. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's more of a general lesson, I think. And it's also something about, it says something about Mia. I want to go too quickly every now and again, and, um, and the same, I think, goes for success. Uh, I like the negotiations best, where people all come out celebrating themselves and the others as winners. Where you actually sit at the end and really say, "Okay, this is our joint line to take in the press." I give you something. Uh, I give uh, I give Nolan something. I give Aaron something. We're all winners in this uh, in this deal. Those are the ones that I like best, and that's what I take extra care of, right? Getting your internal, external stakeholders aligned and making sure no one loses in uh, in the deal and then also not brag about it i would be signing about it forever at that point because i always joke like if there's you both booked a holiday at uh, i don't know booking or something and uh, you know we're, we're in this beach in florida together and i tell you oh, i paid only four hundred dollars for this and you pay twelve hundred dollars guess what uh, you're not gonna have this fun holiday <laughs> so uh, i find it quite let's say unwise to uh, to talk about your negotiation results alone. Uh, uh, so if it's together with the group that celebrated, it, can celebrate the success, go for it. But alone, uh, never take too much credit for the deal and uh, and give most credit to the others, because probably you're gonna go negotiate with them quite soon again.
1: I appreciate your, your willingness to share that. We try to soften you up over the course of the program to be able to ask the vulnerable question, where have you, where you made mistakes. I think that deal making mindset is something that many of us are guilty of. We feel the pressure to rush towards a deal sometimes rush to failure, taking that time, the right amount of time to understand. And then something you mentioned earlier that kind of I thought of too, was that, Hey, an implementation is going to be pretty important too. my job doesn't end just because the deal got done. Okay. We still have to implement this thing. And if I haven't created the conditions through how we negotiate to make that happen, I'm buying myself
2: trouble down the road. That's I think there's three phases. So one is the deal like, okay, we get it now. Okay, perfect. Then people have to write it down. And that's where a lot of things still go wrong because, well, I meant this. Well, I know I meant this, right? So what, what is it? So what I always try to do is basically say, let's, let's keep clear notes during the negotiation. And of course, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, but let, right. let's at least agree on what we now agreed on. And you can always come back to it. It's fine. But then we don't get to this so that you at least have something to like an anchor to fall back to. So that's the second phase. And then there's implementation. And uh, yeah, I always say it's it's better to have a negotiated deal than a, a deal uh, that was given to you by court, basically. But in both instances, people might try to find some extra room. And uh, yeah, there you need to be still in this joint, let's not make our lives difficult mindsets together, making sure that you work diligently towards in the same mindset with which you made the deal.
1: Martin, as we prepare to conclude here, what final piece of advice or key takeaway would you leave with a listener who's a young professional and aspiring to become a more effective negotiator?
2: Uh, train yourself. To me, uh, you can go to a, a beautiful business school somewhere in the US. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really to me, so I think you have skills professions like, I don't know, a doctor or a, a woodworker. You really have to learn that, right? And yeah. of course, you can learn to become a negotiator by experience. Like I was just saying about the general or the prime minister it would never, would, they said, well, I I never did any negotiation course. So what are you, what are you asking me? So of course there is, but I think you can gigantically save on the amount of, of mistakes mm. that you made during this process by really properly training yourself upfront. And after training, it's like driving a car, right? Uh, if you have your driver's license, you're sort of able to drive, but then you learn it in real traffic. Mm. And then every now and again, also ask other people like, uh, <laughs> do you like my driving? Um, So what I like about our company here is if we do really difficult negotiation, we form these echo groups, we call them, where we basically say, okay, how do you think I'm doing? Because we call it belief in your own position in Dutch. So, Mm you know, if I tell you uh, 10 times that I want to sell you this phone and it's, uh, I don't know, it's 500 uh, euros. After the ten time I said this to myself, I'm really believing in this fact. So my position, I really start to believe in my own position. And I always had very hmm. clear conversations with my wife at home, where she was "Really? Did you just? Oh, this is, you're a bully. You shouldn't do this." And it really <laughs> gives you a different perspective, right? And as the deal becomes more uh, complex, you know, talking to other negotiators, uh, maybe also forming—I uh, think that for your students, Aram, it's great to form like a resource group. Like I don't know, have this uh, have this monthly lunch together or this this breakfast at your office, where you have other people that that like negotiations. Uh, or just have an opinion, yeah. you know, just mirror yourself. If that's, that's English mirror yourself with them and saying, you know, this is my plan. This is what I'm doing. And then they would say, Hey, but there's um, that potential here, or maybe have you considered this, or this is a really bad plan to make sure that you keep freshening yourself up also during negotiations. That's in.
1: yeah. I love that response. And I love the comparison. You made it a couple times where it is a craft. It's a skill. I can cut pieces of wood that does not make me a craftsman or a carpenter. It takes to skill. I can read the law. That does not make me a lawyer. It does take this practice and preparation, the intentionality you're talking about. So thank you for that. Thank you for all the insights today. It's been a wonderful discussion, Martin. Really appreciate you
2: joining us from, from across the pond. Yeah, no, thanks. And again, thanks for waking up so early. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh... Uh, I will make everybody here in the Netherlands uh, subscribe to, to Negotiate X. I think it's uh, <laughs> it's insightful. So uh, looking forward to conversation soon. And whenever you're here in the Netherlands, know uh, to find us. We have a really good cappuccino and espresso here. So <laughs> <laughs> we
0: well, will thank, do that. Great. Yep. Thanks, Myron for joining us. And that is it for us on today's podcast. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the Negotiate X podcast. And we'll see you in the next one. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio.